Well, Yom Kippur is a very interesting uh, holiday. I was speaking to my son Jason on the phone earlier today, and uh, and so he was describing to me what you know uh, Yom Kippur uh, in Israel, and it's probably not what you expect. Um, <clears throat> perhaps. Uh, first of all, nobody drives on Yom Kippur in Israel. No, you can walk down a highway with your eyes closed. No traffic. Nobody drives. Everything is closed. Everything is closed. Even uh, Israeli television is, just has a little thing that says, we'll be back after the holiday, you know, that kind of thing. Now, of course, uh, all the stations that are imported from, you know, here and all that uh, are on, but not the Israeli uh, television stations. But what's interesting, and, and people fast, yeah. But the majority of people don't go to a synagogue, don't you know, go and pray, God, forgive my sins, you know, but just stay home. So I said, what do people do? He said, just stay home. <laughs> so it's kind of an interesting irony, isn't it? It's very interesting. Uh, and uh, certainly is uh, worthy of our, of our uh, a prayer. We'll talk about that a little bit later this evening. But tonight I wanted to talk about uh, Kol Nidre a little bit. Not the history of it. You can read about that. It's, you know, it's very interesting. And not uh, our rationale for saying it. Okay, you can read, read about that. Uh, you know, um, Michael Rubenstein is having his bar mitzvah in a few weeks. And like all of our uh, bar, bar mitzvah, bar bat Avraham students, we uh, learn uh, uh, about the values of Judaism, the values of the Jewish people. We have a little book, and we read it, you know, about different values. And one of the values is Jewish solidarity, just Jewish solidarity, uh, meaning that we do things because we identify uh, with our people. And it's interesting, in the book, in the book, uh, he, uh, the author talks about uh, Sandy Koufax, uh, the, the, the pitcher, the Jewish pitcher, uh, who was not that religious, uh, but uh, who did not pitch in a World Series game because it was Yom Kippur. Uh, so that's, uh, you know, kind of interesting. Uh, it's interesting that they pick that illustration also. Like, uh, here's a, you know, uh, a famous a Jewish sports person. And, and you know from a famous movie that all you need is a little sheet of paper and, and you can have all of those Jewish sports heroes on them. But, um, but anyway, Jewish solidarity. And that's why, we, uh, that's why we say kol nidre. It's not like we're saying any, uh, any vow or contract, any promise I've made in the past year, null and void, okay? Uh, no, not at all. Uh, we're identifying with, uh, uh, with uh, the persecutions of our people, and we're identifying, uh, it's like horizontal and vertical, uh, you know, at the same time. Uh, all the Jewish people in the world today we're identifying with who are in synagogues this very evening who've, who have heard that Kol Nidre prayer around the world. The very same prayer, the very same melody around the world. Okay, uh, And then uh, vertically also, generations, where we identify with generations. And of course, we know that from the Bible, from especially uh, Devarim, the book of Deuteronomy, when the children of Israel are on the plains of Moab, and Moses says, when you are at Sinai, and he goes on to describe it, and of course, 
hardly any of them were at Sinai. Literally, hardly any of them were there. But he says, but you were there because part of Am Yisrael, part of Am Yisrael. Uh, and, uh, and that is a, uh, you know, that in and of itself is uh, an important statement to make. Uh, uh, I might have shared this, uh, so forgive me. Uh, you probably don't remember it anyway, right? Uh, uh, I was at a uh, service recently, at a shacharit, uh, early morning service at a local synagogue, and the rabbi there told a great story just a great story of something he had witnessed. He had been to, during the Gaza War, he went to Israel with a contingent of Jewish uh, uh, leaders and visited soldiers in the hospital. And so he told the story about uh, a soldier uh, who gave a sort of a little darash on a, on a Shabbat, but who was, you know, in the hospital. Uh, and, he, and he was talking about his uniform uh, and that he was proud to wear uh, the uniform of, uh, the, uh, of the IDF. But he said, uh, not simply because it is uh, because of Medinat Israel, the state of Israel, but for Am Israel, the people of Israel. And what he meant by that is it was not the citizens of the state of Israel. What he meant is that it represents Jews everywhere, Jewish people around the world. Uh, and so when we talk about Am Yisrael or Jewish solidarity, uh, uh, we're not just talking about um, being one with our people, uh, but specifically uh, within all of that is whatever happens in Eretz Yisrael happens to us all. It's not them. It's us. We're them. They're us. We're them. Uh, whether we live here, or whether we live there. Uh, and, and so it's very important. So when we say Kol Nidre, uh, that is a moment of uh, identification uh, as a worldwide community uh, of Jewish people. And all who identify with us, all who are here tonight who are, who are not Jewish, who identify with us. We stand all uh, uh, together as one. But if you were to ask... Uh, someone who is a, uh, a professional hearer of Kol Nidre, which is all Jewish people, right? That's what I like to say about professional sermon listeners, right? People that listen to sermons week in and week out, right? You're pros at it, of listening and picking out good, not good, you know, things like that. So uh, uh, the, the professional listeners of Kol Nidre, like I said, every Jewish person, will probably not be able to tell you much about the words. Even though in most Sidurim, in most Machzors, like the one we have, you have Hebrew on one side of the page and English on the other. Most people will not be able to tell you the words. And they might not be able to hum the melody. But what they remember is the sense of the sound. The, the solemn nature of the, of the prayer. When Marcy, uh, who does such a great job uh, at uh, singing Kol Nidre, uh, uh, it, it has a different sound than the rest of the liturgy. It has a, an eerie sound. Uh, it has a dark uh, uh, kind of sound. And that's on purpose. That we begin uh, Yom Kippur with a sense of uh, solemnity 
uh, a sense of awe, this uh, 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 sense of we are approaching God with our sins. Now, <clears throat> you know, uh, the, the, the way many people learn uh, Kol Nidre, speaking of the music, is uh, through an, a record album. That's how I learned it, on an actual big black disc, vinyl, and there's a famous album, and I believe that Jan Pierce, right, from the Metropolitan Opera, uh, is the person who sings uh, Kol Nidre on this album. I think that's who it is. And boy, when you, you can hear that, if you Google that after tomorrow night, okay, all right, uh, uh, you can listen to it, and it is real, it's like scary, you know? Uh, and that's what it is meant to be. Again, just like what we said at, uh, Yom, at Rosh Hashanah, that we, uh, God made us physical people to relate to God in a very physical way. And so sound, music, the way we sing, the, the uh, particular uh, music, the sound of the music, the, the liturgical sounds, the, the songs that our music group sings, there's something about sound. There's something about music. And we know that it's true, right? That you can remember a tune, and a tune, you can remember, if a song comes on the radio, you may never get the words. Listen, when I was growing up and I listened to all the popular songs, I got to tell you, I hardly could understand half the lyrics, right? Really, even then, I could hardly, and, you know. But the sound, yeah, get the sound. Uh, and I can, I hear a song that comes, you hear, you do this very same thing. You hear a song that comes on the radio, you know just where you were. You know just where you were when that song made a difference. Maybe the first time you heard it, or you were with your favorite other person, or, uh, you know, um, at uh, uh, traveling somewhere in the car. Even the smell, if, if there was a particular smell of a place that, that went with it, you even get that. There's some, we're wired for music, okay? Uh, and so, the sound of Kol Nidre sets the tone for uh, Yom Kippur. And uh, if you uh, uh, are familiar with uh, the traditional uh, Jewish um, observance of... Uh, uh, of Yom Kippur, you know it's solemn. Uh, it is not rejoicing in the salvation that we have in the Lord and, you know, and, and all of that. It, it, is a, uh, it is a solemn uh, time. It's considered, of course, the holiest uh, day uh, of uh, uh, the year. It's the day when, in the, in the Jewish community today, it is the day when just about everybody, you know, just about everybody, uh, I guess evidently outside of Israel, okay, goes to the synagogue uh, and uh, has either a sense of, I'm here because I'm Jewish, I'm here to confess my sins, I'm here because this is just what, what, I, what I do, but I'm here, okay? Uh, and uh, in the Bible, it certainly is uh, a, a very important holy day. It's described in detail in the Torah, in Leviticus, chapter 16. 
And uh, we'll look at a few verses here. Toward the end of the chapter, you have a nice little summary at the end of the chapter. Beginning in verse 29. In Leviticus uh, uh, chapter 16, beginning in verse uh, 29. And this shall be a permanent statute for you in the seventh month, on the tenth day of the month. You shall humble your souls and not do any work, whether the native or the alien who sojourns among you. For it is on this day of atonement uh, shall be made for you to cleanse you. You shall be clean from all your sins uh, before the Lord. It is to be a Sabbath of solemn rest for you that you may humble your souls. It is a permanent uh, statute. We can actually stop there. So we see it's a solemn assembly. And it's a time when the, uh, to describe what the specifics, uh, and you may be familiar uh, with this passage, that uh, the high priest would, uh, uh, first of all, he would make a sacrifice for himself and for his family. Uh, so that uh, he could be clean, so that he could go into the uh, Holy of Holies. Uh, and then uh, there would be a sacrifice uh, that would be sprinkled and dabbed on the horns of the altar and on the holy, you know, on the mercy seat and so on and so forth, the Ark of the Covenant there. And uh, the text says to cleanse the holy place, to cleanse the holy place. So it's very interesting that the, the sacrifice says that uh, it was not just for the sins of the people, but to cleanse the place. Why did the place have to be cleansed? The place had to be cleansed so that God could come. The, the place had been uh, defiled by, you know, over the course of time by the sins of people. And so the holy place had to be cleansed so that God could visit you know, uh, uh, while the high priest was there. Then we read about the scapegoat, right? The Azazel. That is the goat that the high priest would lay his hands on and the sins of the, the iniquities of the people would uh, be cleansed from the people and be placed on, uh, on, the, uh, on the animal, okay? Uh, and uh, there, there's a variety of places uh, in here. For example... In verses 20 and 21, he says, when he finishes atoning for the holy place, you know, and there's, uh, explains exactly what he's supposed to do to uh, smear the blood so that the holy place is cleansed, okay? It says, when you finish atoning for the holy place and the tent of the meeting and the altar, he shall offer the live goat. Then Aaron shall lay, but now in verse 21, then Aaron shall lay both of his hands on the head of the live goat, and confess over it all the iniquities of the sons of Israel and all their transgressions in regard to all their sins. And he shall lay them on the head of the goat and send it away into the wilderness by the hand of a man who stands in readiness. And the goat shall bear on itself all their iniquities to a solitary land, and he shall release the goat in the wilderness." The purpose of the uh, blood, notice you have the word cleanse all over here, all over the place here, okay? Cleansing the uh, sanctuary, cleansing the holy place, cleansing the people, 
Okay? Uh, 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 Jacob Milgram, who is the foremost, who was, he's passed away now, the foremost scholar in all of this, refers to the blood as the detergent, right? The, the cleansing agent uh, for the people uh, and uh, for the holy place. And the way that, just like dirt, you know, just like you take uh, uh, a cleanser and clean dirt, the dirt is removed, right? And so the, the iniquities, the sins are removed. They're removed from the holy place and they're uh, removed uh, from the people. Now, it's interesting where this text is located uh, here in Leviticus. If you go back to chapter 10, to the famous story of Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, and how they defile the holy place. Okay, how they defile it. Well, you may be familiar with that chapter, and that's where they die, and, and Aaron cannot, he, he, he just can't speak, and Moses comes and, and uh, you know, uh, raises up uh, uh, the, the, his uh, next son uh, uh, to come and to, to be the priest, and and they have this whole interaction, okay? Then you read in chapters 11, 12, 13, 14, and 15 about impurities, about defilements, okay? Because uh, in chapter 10, Moses explains that the role of the priest is to teach the people and to judge when a person is clean or defiled and so on and so forth, or a place is clean or defiled. And so in chapters 11, which includes the, the dietary laws in their context, uh, uh, chapter 11, 12, 13, and 14, and 15, all kinds of defilement, whether we're talking about bodily fluids, mold in a house, death, childbirth, uh, not necessarily sin, in other words, but simply uh, what would be called uncleanness. Okay? So now, in chapter 16, Notice at the very beginning of the chapter. The very beginning of the chapter. Now the Lord spoke to Moses after the death of the two sons of Aaron. So the narrative, the story, continues from chapter 10, if you follow me. Okay, in other words, you could take out chapters 11, 12, 13, 14, and 15, and you would have the story continuing. Okay? But... The way, the, the way it's laid out, the text is actually telling us something. You see? That there are all kinds of defilement. And so there was a real need for this Day of Atonement. There was a real need for cleansing. This overall cleansing of the people. This overall cleansing of the place. See? So that the people could uh, interact with God. So that they could interact uh, with, uh, with God. Now, after the destruction of the temple, you, don't, you no longer have the second temple. You no longer have, obviously, a sacrifice. You no longer have this priesthood. And in a sense, you no longer have the, the uh, original meaning of the, of the holiday. Now, slowly but surely, Yom Kippur came to be a time when we, when we come and and we individually pray that God would forgive our sins. Uh, and I suppose to a certain degree communally uh, uh, forgive our sins. But what is emphasized, certainly for most, is uh, an individual comes, you know, uh, and, 
the, uh, the, the way the literature reads, the rabbinic literature reads, the way this, the tradition is, is that this is when your name is written in the book of life or death for the next year. So it's a pretty solemn time. You know, if you really are a, uh, a very observant, believing Jewish person, you come on Yom Kippur and you want your name in that book of life. It's not about, I pray that, you know, when I die many years from now, I'm going to go to heaven or something. It's that I might live for the next year and get to the next um, Yom Kippur. Now, for those of you that are hearing this for the first time, I'll answer the question that you're thinking in your head, maybe. And that is, so does that mean, like, if somebody dies in February, wow, like their name wasn't written in the book? Nobody, nobody moves from point A to point B, uh, at least that I'm familiar with. Uh, I've, I've never heard anybody ever say, oh, you know, Uncle, uh, Uncle Sammy, name wasn't written in the Book of Life back last Yom Kippur, right? It doesn't usually translate that, that way. But yet, it is a solemn assembly. Yet, there are numerous prayers of forgiveness, uh, of uh, confessions of sins, what I'm trying to say. Many prayers of confessions of sin. And so, uh, the music of Kol Nidre epitomizes the whole sense, the, you know, the, the whole feeling uh, of, uh, of the holiday. Now, we saw here, as we read the passage toward the end here, that it's a time of affliction of the soul. You shall humble your souls. Now, granted, that could mean a lot of things, but the way it traditionally it has been understood, as many of us know, it means to fast. We fast on this day. Okay? Uh, we fast on Yom Kippur because of that desire to humble our souls. We fast for varieties of reasons. To deny ourselves uh, so that we can feel the need for God. So that we sense, we can feel it. And uh, you know, so I was reading up a little bit on you know, what people had to say about fasting, and it's very interesting. Uh, and one person wrote that it's interesting that what we're denying ourselves of is, uh, is something very natural, normal, something we do every day. You know, and that is uh, eat, right? Uh, and, uh, and that, in a sense, it is, so he went on to say, that it is the normal everyday blessings, the normal everyday good things in our life that often inoculate us from experiencing a need for God, you know? And so that, in other words, you know, we, we have food on our table, we have, uh, we have uh, shelter, we have a roof over our head, uh, you know, we have enough, um, we have money to, to uh, be able to, to uh, get by, we live sort of a, just a normalized life. There's this cushion, and we don't experience that need. Isn't it true that if you run out of money, I mean literally run out of money, you experience need? Now, we would not call that fasting, right? Uh, nor would we probably, just before this holiday, empty our bank accounts completely and give, uh, give away every bit of uh, money that we have so that we really experience need uh, you know, on this day. But something that we can do is we deny ourselves of eating and drinking if, if we can. 
uh, you know, I suppose that uh, if that is impossible, and it is for, for some, certainly, that perhaps denying ourselves another basic pleasure, just denying ourselves a basic pleasure, uh, also might be able to do that. But I can tell you, and I'm sure you know, you know yourself, that if you're fasting, you, you really do experience hunger, right? Uh, and a desire for food. You do. No matter how holy we're trying to be, what you, you do get hungry, okay? Uh, and, uh, uh, and so there's this self-denial uh, aspect, a physical way of recognizing a need. It also makes us vulnerable. You know, there's a particular weakness that, that goes along with it, and perhaps, perhaps a spiritual sensitivity, uh, uh, therefore. Okay? Um, we could also consider it a spiritual discipline. A spiritual discipline. Uh, where, and, and you see this in the Brit Hadashah. You know, Yeshua talks about fasting a lot, and he, he doesn't say, if you fast. He says, when you fast. There's an expectation of fasting. What that tells us, by the way, is something about first century, the first century Jewish world. That in the first century Jewish world, fasting was a normal part of spirituality, a normal part of devotion to God. And it is almost always coupled with prayer, when you fast and pray, when you fast and pray. Okay? Uh, and so there's a spiritual discipline along that, that goes with that, that, that in a sense Yeshua himself assumed. And that is that there is a particular interaction that one has with God through fasting and prayer. Now, it's not like going to the ATM machine where, boy, I really need God to answer this prayer, so I'm going to fast and pray so, so it'll happen. You know, like, beep, 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 beep. You know, that, that's not fasting and prayer. But it is a particular way of approaching God that, according to Yeshua, brings us uh, a, uh, a specific, unique uh, opportunity or experience of intimacy uh, with God when our head is focused on it. You know, when we're not doing it simply to tell people that we're fasting or as a religious exercise, simply as just something we do uh, legalistically. Okay? Uh, but there is this uh, expectation. Now there's another, uh, there's another interesting way of looking at uh, fasting. Turn with me to the Brit Hadashah, where Yeshua talks about fasting in another uh, uh, place other than the Sermon on the Mount. And that is, there was a particular situation where he was asked about fasting. And that is in Matthew chapter 9. And this is kind of an odd, kind of an odd passage. Because you'd think that if anybody's going to be fasting, it's going to be Yeshua and his disciples, okay? Having said everything we just said. But notice what it says here in Matthew chapter 9, uh, beginning in verse uh, 14. Then the disciples of John came to him, saying, Why do we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? Why? That doesn't sound right. But, that's, but that is what he says. Why do we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Yeshua said to them, The attendants of the bridegroom cannot mourn. By the way, let me just stop there and say, see, 
When you read the text carefully, you learn all kinds of important things. What we learn by that little statement is, is that fasting, at least in this context, was associated with mourning. Okay? Was associated with mourning. Just like uh, sackcloth and ashes or tearing one's clothes. So fasting was associated with mourning. Okay. The attendants of the bridegroom cannot mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them, can they? But the day will come, the days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast. So that's rather interesting. So without turning to all the passages, because that would be a, a, a message in and of itself, we know how Yeshua talked about leaving, leaving, leaving his disciples, leaving, leaving his friends. And they don't quite get it, right? Like, where are you going? Can we go with you? How do we get there? Right? But of course, he was talking about uh, leaving in via his death and resurrection and ascension to the right hand of the Father. Right? And we know that today, that is where Yeshua is. Now, we know that metaphysically, of course, he's with us. He's, he dwells within us. But he's not here like he was here then. Right? And so this is indeed a time for fasting. A fasting in a sense of longing, longing for the day when there will be uh, all that God has promised. Longing for that day. And so we fast and we pray, and in a sense, we mourn as we look around this world. We mourn what we see going on everywhere, you name it. We mourn what we see going on in our own city. We mourn what we see going on in, uh, you know, in, in uh, business and in government and uh, in all kinds of important places. And, and we mourn when we see people who are starving in our own country, in our own city. We mourn when we, we see uh, just um, uh, people uh, uh, suffering in tremendous ways. And we mourn when we see people suffering who seem to have everything but are suffering tremendously. We mourn when we look at the world outside of, of our little circle. We mourn when we look at what's going on in West Africa and in our own country. We mourn when we uh, look at what's happening um, you know, in different places in Asia. Just because it's not in our news doesn't mean it's not happening, by the way, right? We mourn uh, the things, although that, that we do know, and that is we mourn what we see going on all over the Middle East, right? I mean, we mourn when we see just, uh, you know, people suffering tremendously uh, all over the place there, all over the place. You know, when we see with, with what the ISIS is doing, uh, what we see happening uh, just to the lives of people uh, created in the image and likeness of God who are created as image bearers of God just like you and I and what's, ha- and what's happening. Uh, and certainly uh, we mourn when we look at uh, what's happening in Israel. We mourn when we, when we think about how um, uh, you know, the, the troubles of Israel with with uh, uh, Gaza and the West Bank and, and, and all of that. We mourn also when we look inside of Israel, 
We mourn when we think that people don't go to the synagogue on Yom Kippur. We should be mourning over that, right? And, uh, and so we fast not only for our own selves, and of course, perhaps we mourn over our own selves and our own failings and our own sins. That's where it all starts, of course, over the fact that we're not the men and women that we know down deep inside that we're called to be, not one of us, uh, has uh, made it, right? Even Paul himself says he has not attained it yet, but he presses on, not looking backwards, but continually moving forward toward Messiah Yeshua. Uh, and so we mourn we, and we fast uh, just uh, for the very reason that uh, uh, Yeshua himself uh, uh, says here. And we look forward, you know, uh, indeed, uh, uh, to, that, uh, to that day. But what about for us right now? We mourn, we look forward, but what, but what does all of this um, mean to us uh, uh, today, right now, as a messianic, uh, as a messianic uh, community? This issue of, uh, of fasting and this issue of the uh, atonement certainly is very important to us. However, there are some who might say, well, why do you bother with it at all if uh, the Messiah has come? If the Messiah has come, your sins are forgiven, so relax. You know, uh, you, don't need to, you don't need to do any of this. You don't need to fast. Uh, you don't need to, to, to uh, uh, say these confessions. Well, first of all, one of the things that we uh, realize here uh, is that in this little section in Matthew chapter 9, Yeshua is indeed saying uh, that even though he has come and, uh, and he has, you know, the, the bridegroom is going to leave, having consummated uh, an aspect of uh, this, uh, this marriage in his death and resurrection and ascension and the pouring out of the Ruach HaKodesh, of the Spirit of God, that still we need something. That's why he says the day will come when you'll fast. That we don't have it all. And in a way, that's, he's saying that. He's saying that he says this in a variety of ways in a number of places. Yes, he has come to inaugurate the beginning of the end, but we don't have it all. Look at the world around you. Look at the world around us. We certainly uh, 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 do not have it all. Yet uh, we know that Yeshua is the sin offering right? As it says clearly in the New Covenant. And just to turn to one place, you know me, I'm tempted to go in many places here, but I'll just look at one in Romans chapter 8, at the beginning of the chapter. He says, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Messiah Yeshua. For the law of the Spirit of life in Messiah Yeshua has set you free from the law of sin and death. For what the law could not do, weak as it was, through the flesh, God did, sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and as an offering for sin, He condemned sin in the flesh. Okay, So He's the offering for sin. Yeshua is the sin offering. He is the cleanser. He took upon Himself, He's the Azazel, He's the scapegoat. He took all of our sins on Himself. He takes us off the hook in that regard. It's like he scrubs us clean from sin. And not only that, but he actually pays the price. 
for our sins. In doing so, our sins are forgiven. When you read in Leviticus chapter 16, when it says that you have atonement for your sins, it doesn't say you have forgiveness of your sins. However, the removal of sin, the Hebrew word nasa, which is used elsewhere, for example, in Psalm 32 that we all said earlier this evening, that uh, you know, blessed is the one whose sins are forgiven, literally means whose, whose sins are lifted up, all, whose, whose sins are lifted up, like taken off. And it's God indeed who does that. Just like in Isaiah chapter 53, right? The uh, famous Isaiah 53 uh, 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 passage where we read, All of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way, but the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. Removed, cleansed, taken off. And so we can rejoice, uh, uh, certainly, uh, in that great truth. However, we know that uh, we still uh, live in this world, even though the bridegroom has come, right? We still live in this world, and we mourn, and we fast, because we don't have it all yet. We still sin. We still need to confess our sins. We still need to come before God and experience forgiveness. It is never a case where we say, well, I'm forgiven all of the sins I will ever do. I'm already forgiven. May I suggest that as people who live in a physical world, we don't experience that forgiveness until we confess the sin. We don't experience it until we confess the sin. Wow, doesn't that put kind of a new light on confession of sin? Like we need to do this. We have to do this. We have to confess our sins. Yes, we know that uh, when we embrace Messiah and this, uh, 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 this transaction takes place in our heart, yes, we uh, have an assurance of our salvation. We have an assurance of the forgiveness of sins. But let me ask you this. When you get married, and let's say for whatever reason or somehow, you have an assurance that there will never be a divorce we're never going to get divorced. Does that mean then, then, okay, so I can do whatever I want. I can just do whatever I want, whatever that means. I can have an affair. I can treat my spouse terribly. I can yell and scream at them. I can, yeah, they can be my, uh, my uh, uh, figurative uh, punching bag or whatever, you know, whatever, whatever it is. doesn't matter because no divorce. No, no. And so when we know Yeshua, we need to confess our sins. We're missing the point if we simply think, okay, I have my ticket to heaven. You know, I got my ticket. What does Paul say in Romans chapter 6? It's impossible to think that way and be serious. He says, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace might increase? May it never be. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? You, you can't, you can't, you can't be that way. You can't think that way and really know the Lord. That's what he's saying, okay? Uh, and so we need to confess our sins. That's why it says in 1 John chapter 1 and verse 9, if we confess our sins, 
He is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And by the way, if we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. My little children, I am writing these things to you that you may not sin. See, obviously to John, this was a very important issue, okay? About continuing to sin after you're uh, a believer in Messiah, okay? And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Yeshua HaMashiach, the righteous. What I would say is, why do you need an advocate if it doesn't matter? It matters. Sin matters. Confession matters. And so it is important uh, that we come, that we confess our sins uh, all the time. But it's important that we confess uh, our sins on Yom Kippur. Because we're doing so not only for our own selves, but also as a, uh, as a community. And if, and if we truly desire God to uh, bless us or use us for his glory in all of the ways that are possible, we need to be cleansed. We need to be forgiven like it says in 1 John chapter 1. And experience forgiveness and cleansing. The removal of sin. I think for many of us, for many of us, that the sins that we have are like burrs. You know what burrs are? When I was a kid, uh, um, we lived, uh, we were the last house on the street when I was growing up. And so what I loved to do when I was a little kid was run in the, I used to just call them the weeds. Run in the weeds. And so when I would come back in the house on my socks, there'd be all these things stuck to my socks, Right? And then you pull them out, but then there were still these little pieces in there. You know what I mean? It's like sins. I think for many of us, I wonder, and I'm just thinking out loud, I wonder how many of us have never really experienced cleansing for our sins. I wonder how many of us, before we knew the Lord, felt a lot cleaner than after we know the Lord. Because I didn't even know, you know, I, I, I was ignorant before I knew the Lord. Then I come to know the Lord and I see all these sins and I just, I just, you know, it, it's like this. My sins are like, uh, you know, there's nothing I can do. I can bang my head against a wall, but it's, right? Well, so the fact of the matter is, is that when we, by faith, confess our sins, just like by faith we embrace Yeshua, by faith, we confess our sins. We need to trust God that he really has forgiven me and he really has cleansed me, that my conscience is cleansed. And we read about it throughout in the book of Hebrews, for example, about a cleansed conscience. Wow, I could really feel something like that. You see, and that is the blessing. That's part of the good news, see? That's part of the good news. And we can experience that when we embrace Yeshua because he took our sins on himself. And the really great news is that is what he has planned for the whole world. That in the death and resurrection of Yeshua, that is why there's going to be a new world, a new heaven and a new earth. That's why there's going to be peace in the world. That's why the day is going to come and there's not going to be any tears. There's not going to be any, any sadness. There's not going to be any mourning. Uh, it, you know, the... the uh, the ideal was going to be realized because of the death and resurrection of Yeshua. And we who embrace him are like 
the tip of the sword and can experience that cleansing and that newness of life. That's what the newness of life is all about. See? And well, there's a whole lot more to say, but I'm going to save that maybe for tomorrow and, and, uh, and other times uh, tomorrow as well uh, in the morning service and throughout the day sharing. Uh, however, let us at least have that thought and recognize that uh, on this Yom Kippur, we humble our souls, we fast and we pray, we have uh, uh, Yeshua, our Messiah, the one who is our, the sin offering, the one who has scrubbed us clean from our sins and continues to scrub us clean as we continue to get dirty. He continues to scrub us clean. Let us truly, by faith, confess our sins and experience wholeness and cleansing uh, and forgiveness, which, which takes away the barrier, which gives us a new intimacy and empowerment uh, to walk with God and make a difference in this world. Let's pray. Lord uh, God, we thank you for this great truth, Lord, that Yeshua is our atonement. The Messiah has indeed come, and his name is Yeshua. But Lord, we thank you, God, that at the very same time, we can come and identify with our, with our people. Lord, and just like Ezra tore his clothes and was appalled at all he saw, Lord, I pray that we might mourn what we see around us that we might mourn our own sin, the sins of our families, the sins of our fellowship, the sins of our city, the sins of our state and country, the sins of this world. Lord, may we mourn and fast and pray. And may we confess the sins of our world. As Heschel said, few are guilty, but all are responsible. Lord, may we take responsibility for the sins of this world. And not point fingers, but do what Yeshua did, and that is identify with the people. And in a sense, identify with the sins. Not partake in the sins, but to forgive the sins by suffering and dying. Lord, perhaps in our lives, in particular periods of our lives, you call us to a particular kind of suffering and a particular kind of dying as we forgive those who have harmed us, as we forgive those who have harmed our family, as we forgive those who have harmed our community, as we forgive those who have harmed our nation, as we forgive those who harm our people, Israel. Lord, it's a tough one. But Lord, we pray, God, that we would intercede for the sins of this world, just like Yeshua, and show that kind of love. For Lord, as your word, as John also tells us, we can love because you have first loved us. And so, Lord, on this Yom Kippur, God, may it truly be this time of confession, may it be a time of cleansing, and indeed a time of forgiveness. And we pray in Messiah's name, amen.